Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig and today we are joined by a very special guest in our podcast studio and that's Dan Hannon or Lord Dan Hannon, all the way from the UK visiting New Zealand right now and someone that I have known for a long time and actually someone who's been the first ever speaker at a New Zealand Initiative event back in 2012. So welcome back, Thank Dan. Thank you so much, Oliver. It's such a pleasure to be back here. I mean, it really is a pleasure to be back here. What with all this rain New Zealand has had, it was looking even greener than usual. Oh. As I came as I came in the southern approach to Auckland and I thought, why does anyone ever leave this place? Correct. Well, <laughs> great to have you back here with us. I should probably explain a little bit of a history, actually, how I first came across you, because I studied economics and then law in Germany. And there was this British commentator in my favorite German newspaper, Die Welt, making good sense of European politics. And that was a certain Dan Hannon. And I read your columns living in Germany, thinking, well, this guy makes sense. And then I moved to London. Of course, we met almost 20 years ago. So we are going back quite a long time, actually. And I must say, you still make sense, except you're no longer a British member of the European Parliament because you abolished your own I job. I succeeded in abolishing my job. Yes, I did enjoy that gig writing for Die Welt. Um, there was a, the editor of the time was a man called Roger Kerpel, who then went on to become a... He's a Swiss. So he, he went on to become an editor there and, a, and an MP. And he told me, I cannot find any respectable German to criticize Brussels. And you will well remember, Oliver, that that was the atmosphere in the 90s and the early 2000s. It was just uh, almost like a religious obligation. But yes, it, I, I have to say it is very nice coming here, having succeeded with Brexit as an independent country that now has a free trade agreement with New Zealand, one which I hope we can deepen and, and widen, and as a, a, a sovereign people again who, who can hire and fire our own lawmakers. Well, then let's talk about Brexit. Actually, let's talk a little bit about your background. You were a member of the European Parliament for quite some time. When did you become elected? Yes, I was there 21 years. Yeah. I have served my debt to society, Your Honour, 21 years. Yeah. yeah, for your sins, because you were always of the opinion that Britain actually doesn't really have a place in the EU. Yes, uh, well, uh, you know... With a with a con matices, as they say in Spain, with some with some uh, shades. So, I like most Brits who are in the modern Eurosceptic movement. The big change for us was the Maastricht Treaty, nineteen ninety two. Nineteen ninety two. So up until then, I think you could plausibly make the argument that the EU was primarily a collection of states, and that their chief areas of collaboration were economic and commercial. That's how it was sold to the British, because in Britain, it's probably the only country in which this construct was known as the common market. Yes. Or the single market. Yes, both by its supporters and by its opponents who didn't like markets. So, Whereas the but, continental Europeans talked about the union. Right. Well, it only became the union in 1992 yes. with the Maastricht Treaty. I mean, there's a quite important point that the name changed from European Economic Community to European Union. And that was not just a change of name, because Maastricht extended the jurisdiction of the EU into a load of areas for the first time that had absolutely nothing to do with trade and economics. To so, be, To be fair, the continental Europeans started talking about the common house yes, and all sorts of I, other I know they'd started talking about it, but this... There was a there was a fundamental change. So Maastricht obviously extended it into you know foreign policy and environment policy, immigration, civil affairs, defence, all that. Now it is perfectly true. You're quite right to say that right from the beginning, right from the fifties, there were people who said we want to have effectively a country called Europe with its own army and police force and so on. But up until the Maastricht Treaty, that had been just one option among many. 
After Maastricht, it became the official policy. And that, I think, was when British people, in in numbers, because we'd we'd had a referendum in 1975, we'd accepted the result, began to say, hang on, this is not what we signed up to. Now, uh, the reason I stress that is because you you asked me originally, was I always in favour of leaving? Well, I was in favour of getting back to some kind of pre-Maastricht deal. And I wasn't so arrogant as to think that we would persuade all the others to do that. But I didn't think it was unrealistic that we could have got some such status for ourselves. And as late as 2016, as late as February 2016, had David Cameron come back from the renegotiations with any retrieval of power at all, had he been able to bring back just one power repatriated, you know, maybe just fisheries or industrial policy, one thing, doesn't matter what, enough to establish the precedent that power didn't have to be centralised, that the power could flow down as well as up. I don't think there is any doubt that he would have won the ensuing referendum with a landslide. And we therefore have to ask the question, why was it that the European Union was happier to lose its second largest economy than to allow any devolution of power from Brussels? And the answer is because for them, devolution of power from Brussels is an unthinkable heresy. And that, in the end, is why... I, not just I, but a majority of the country decided we couldn't stay. And that European project post-Maastricht, post-1992, was a project about replicating the institutions of a nation-state, but at that European level, or, to put it with P.G. O'Rourke, the late P.G. O'Rourke, it was the idea to convince a Finn that someone from Sicily is not a foreigner. Yes, it's a, a good way of putting it. So you you had to you were creating all of the attributes and trappings of statehood: a president, a parliament, a passport, a driving license, a flag, external borders, embassies, the works. You yes. know, and and indeed legal personality. And, yeah. and so all of that was being done, but without a nation to support it, without a sense of shared public opinion. So. This was the fundamental problem. You you can't have a, a, a democracy without a demos, without a without a unit with which we identify when we use the word we, you know. And if you if you take the demos out of a democracy, you're you're left only with the kratos. You're left yes. only with the power, the, the, the power of a, a system that has to compel by law what it can't ask in the name of patriotism. And so None of these supranational states ever works as a democracy. And we had a few referenda in the meantime. We had them in the Netherlands, we had them in France, and typically they didn't go the way of the elites. And so you repeat referenda... Either you, either you were made vote. to vote again, or they were simply uh, disregarded. Um, and th- th- this, this has always been the EU's problem. It, it's undemocratic in its structures, in that it, it concentrates executive and legislative power in an unelected commission. But it's also anti-democratic in its attitudes, in that I was very aware of this when I was working in Brussels. There's a sort of fear of the the, the unwashed masses. The, the people who have moved to Brussels, very often they are, they've had to take lots of exams to get there. You have a very high language requirement to work there. So so typically when you say to somebody, where are you from in Brussels, in the, in the commission, first of all, they're offended by the question because it's not politically correct. But if they do answer it, it's usually along the lines of, oh, well, you know, my, my dad was Swedish and my mum was Portuguese, but I mainly grew up in Austria. They feel a little bit cut off from and slightly, if I'm honest, slightly contemptuous of the the great unwashed electorates. And and so their their instinct when when people vote for something is to see a negative vote as an obstacle to overcome, not as a reason to listen or to change direction themselves, because they 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 think they know better. So you were one of the leading figures in the Brexit campaign. 
which you won narrowly, also because David Cameron, of course, didn't get any concessions out of Brussels or let alone out of Angela Merkel in Berlin. But then what? The promise was actually that it would lead Britain to a different future where it could actually shape its own destiny, where it could make its own trade deals. But that hasn't really materialized, at least not in the last seven years. Maybe the time is too short. But in hindsight, is that what you expected or are you slightly underwhelmed by what you have achieved in the last seven years? No, I, I am disappointed by slowness in grasping some of the opportunities. And I had underestimated the institutional resistance of our administrative state, the deliberate foot dragging, either from people who expect expressly want to rejoin and think that by failing to diverge they're making it easier for a future government to take us back in or from those who are just a bit sulky and petulant about the whole thing and, and can't bring themselves to see any advantages. So I, we've been particularly slow to deregulate even to get rid of the regulations and directives that everybody opposed at the time that were the most uncontroversially unpopular when they were brought in partly because of what I've said and partly because you know it's, it's, it's in the nature of of regulation that once you have assimilated the compliance costs, you don't just lose interest in repeal. You, you, you then don't want the next company to come and undercut you by not doing it. So you start becoming an advocate of the thing that you used to oppose. The idea that there have been no benefits or no significant benefits from Brexit, I just think is palpable nonsense. There are obvious benefits that should be uncontroversial even for Remainers to recognise. Uh, for example, we now control our own agriculture, our own countryside. So instead of having to subsidize the surplus food production, we can use it more sensibly to make floods less likely and so on by, by better land management. We can fish what we want from our own seas. We have been outside 80% of the directives and, legis uh, and regulations passed in Brussels since we left. Uh, we've been outside, by the way, very significantly, the, the new bailout fund created after covid we were the fastest vaccine rollout in the world because we stayed out of the EU scheme. And not least, we have been, far more slowly than I want, but nonetheless, we have been liberalising our trade. I think we have more trade deals than any other country in the world. We've signed more in a faster time than anyone else, including some significant ones. So obviously, I'm very happy to have a free trade agreement with New Zealand. But honestly, that was just a restoration of the status quo ante. That was never going to be challenging. I think it's really significant that we, alongside New Zealand, are in the CPTPP. I am cautiously optimistic that we will have a free trade agreement with India before the next election. And we would be the first Western country to have a meaningful, significant FTA with India. We've been a lot more ambitious than the Australians were in what we're, what we're trying to achieve. These things are hugely significant. And in fact, our leaving the EU and joining CPTPP means that on some measures, CPTPP is now bigger than the EU in terms of, of its total economy. But whether or not that's true now, it will be true in five minutes time, right? I mean, the growth rates of CPTPP are huge. It is where you want to be. Still, back to the question, why hasn't progress been faster? I mean, you mentioned the bureaucracy, and that plays a huge role. But there is politics as well. And in the process of all of this, your party, the Conservatives, went through how many leaders now? Four or five? They seem to be changing every few months. How much did that actually hamper progress? Well, some of it was caused by the Euro crisis. So the, the fundamental problem we had is that although the country had voted to leave the European Union, there was a huge majority in Parliament against leaving. And they were prepared to vote accordingly. 
And this became especially acute after the 2017 general election, when there was now a uh, an expressly anti-Brexit majority because the, the Labour MPs who had not indicated this when they were standing for election then made clear that they were not prepared to leave. And it's really important that people understand this because I don't think it's understood by friends overseas. Those MPs, the majority of MPs, said in terms, we will not leave the EU except on terms that Brussels likes. They didn't phrase it like that. What they said is, we will not permit a no-deal Brexit. But if you think about it, that's exactly the same thing. You're saying, we will not leave except if Brussels has approved the deal. And by the the way, not to make this unnecessarily party political, there were such MPs in your party as well. There certainly were. Yeah, absolutely. There There were such MPs in all parties. And they didn't just say it. They passed a bill making this a legal requirement, taking foreign policy away from the government and saying, we, Parliament, will not permit Brexit except on terms agreed by Brussels. Now, what do you expect the EU to do in that situation? Once they'd pinched themselves to make sure they were awake, uh, they couldn't believe their luck. They then started making all sorts of demands that it had not occurred to them to make up until that moment, most damagingly over Northern Ireland. And this was a direct result of the people who had deliberately tried to sabotage the process. So it was really a bit much when they they then turned around and said, oh, this isn't going as well as you said, you know, what about... When they had been the people who created that situation. And I, I think that is, it's a really important uh, thing that people look at the, the chronology and understand why it happened. And we are still actually trying to figure out what's going to happen to Northern Ireland in the long run. We actually visited with a delegation from the New Zealand Initiative, um, Ireland, the Republic and Northern Ireland earlier this year, and we were trying to make sense of it. And I think so was everybody else in Northern Ireland, where the long-term future really stands for them. Yes, I mean, if there were goodwill, it would have been quite easy to have said, look, let's have free trade uh, with both sides. In fact, if there were goodwill there would be complete uh, free trade between the UK and the EU, so the issue wouldn't arise. Again, it's important to understand this is all this is all coming one way. This is all coming from one side. There was never any suggestion from anyone in Britain that we should put checks on the Northern Ireland border to protect our single market. No one ever suggested that. We all said, oh, we're perfectly happy to trust the EU. If, they, if they've approved something, it's not going to you know, destroy the integrity of the, of the British market. We're very happy to have stuff, if you like, leaking in, uh, whether through Northern Ireland or any other way. We, we, we had no checks, right? It was the EU who said, no, we absolutely must have the full panoply of checks. And they went so far as, at one stage, to be conducting 20% of all of their checks on 0.5% of the trade coming across from the from Great Britain to to, to Ireland, so there, were, there were more checks on you know the parcels coming from you know Bangor in Wales to Bangor in Northern Ireland than there were on the whole eastern frontier of the EU. Now this was not a partner acting in good faith. This was still an attempt to, if you like, give us a kicking for Brexit. And and the whole thing only arose, as I say, because of this moment when we had a majority in Parliament that voted to allow that to happen. No, it probably will take a few years until you have sorted out that situation with the European Union because I can't actually see them changing their mindset because it's been there for decades. But in the meantime, what you're trying to do as the UK is, of course, you're also trying to reach out beyond the EU. And I want to talk in particular about an initiative that you have led for many years now, trying to reconnect the UK with other like-minded countries, like-minded democracies and highly developed economies. So 
countries like Canada, the US, Australia, and New Zealand. And I understand that's also one of the reasons why you visit New Zealand regularly. Can you tell us about that initiative? Yes. So there's a policy or a loose amalgamation of, of policies that, that go under the name of CANZAC, being the acronym for Canada, Australia, New Zealand, UK. The idea is to have free trade, free movement of labor, and enhanced political and diplomatic cooperation among these four countries. Uh, why these four countries? Basically because they have the most interoperable economies. Not the US? The US is, at the mo I mean, of course, I'd love to have a sort of five eyes economic union as well, but the US under both parties at the moment is in a highly protectionist mood. So I think let's go ahead with whom we can so for now. Four eyes. Yes. Well, we still have you the actual five eyes, right? But, 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 but the point about Kanzuk is that you have extraordinary proximity, cultural, economic, and political. These are not just countries that share language and law, uh, habit and history, customs and, and kinship. They are uniregal countries. <laughs> they, they share a head of state. They share the same parliamentary system. And more pertinently, the same accountancy mechanisms, you know, the same qualifications. If you're, if you're a doctor, a lawyer, an architect, it's not just that you've studied the same kind of syllabus. It's you've probably qualified at the same institutions or at least places invigilated by the same people, right? So it should be the easiest thing in the world to make qualifications interoperable and to allow people to move around. Now, this broadly happens already between Australia and New Zealand. I Indeed. think that the the Trans-Tasman Agreements and CERTA, whatever the acronym we want to use. Clause Economic Relations. Yeah, well, rather like CPTPP, the name has changed down yeah, the years yeah. more than once. But And this but, year we are celebrating 40 years of that agreement. And it's an extraordinarily good agreement. I think it is probably the outstanding trade deal on the planet between yep. two sovereign countries. And in some ways, it gives New Zealand workers more rights than Australian workers in a different state. Right. So as I understand it, a Kiwi primary school teacher, for example, can work in every Australian state more easily than some Australians who qualified in, in a different place, right? So it's an extraordinarily good deal. And one way of thinking about Kanzak is it's quadrilateralizing that deal. It's bringing in Canada and the UK for the same reason that it works between Australia and New Zealand, which is interoperability. You know, the same, not just the same legal norms, but the same unwritten sort of etiquette that goes with it. You know, if there's a if there's if there's a dispute between two companies, it will be arbitrated in a way that both of them understand and in a way that both of them have confidence in, because it's it's familiar. Where would this end? Well the first point to make is it, it could nestle comfortably within CPTPP. You know, it's a sort of hardcore of CPTPP. There's an argument, by the way, for tacking on Singapore, Kanzaks, who I think meet all of the the criteria. One of the main arguments I get, one of the very few arguments against this, because it's incredibly popular. It, it, there's, a, there's a group in Vancouver, who, who the people who are really pushing it, and they regularly poll all four of the putative members. And, you know, you're getting sort of 80% plus approval ratings. I mean, it, it is, of all the feasible policies that could be done tomorrow and haven't been, this is probably the most popular. One of the few arguments against it is this weird sort of woke argument that says, oh, this is imperial nostalgia. You know, you want to go back to the white commonwealth, all this kind of stuff. And you particularly get that in Britain from people who are still upset about Brexit. Oh, you you know, you didn't want free movement with Romania and Poland, but you do want free movement. How, how convenient? Well, I mean, first of all, to make an obvious point, Romania and Poland have a much whiter population than any of the Kansas country, I mean, by, by a huge order. But actually, I'm very struck that among 
a lot of the immigrant-descended populations in Kanzuk, a lot of them have, if you like, the same links in the same countries. If people have come from Hong Kong or from Punjab or whatever, it's quite unusual that they don't say, oh, I've got an aunt in Winnipeg and I've got a cousin in Melbourne. And, you know. So everybody is in favour of this, you know. And it's, it's, I think it's been a, a regrettable failure of political imagination that we haven't acted on it earlier and more decisively. So what's holding it back? I think for a long time, well, obviously it was, it was not feasible while Britain was in the EU. It's only become feasible since we recovered control of our trade policy. There's a degree of institutional inertia in all, all of the countries. I think Britain's probably more at fault than, than most of the others on this. Would it require the governments in all four countries to be of the same kind of general political persuasion? No. It's probably it help. It, well, it is probably fair to say that there is more enthusiasm in general in the right of centre parties than in the left of centre, than in the Labour parties or their equivalents in, in, in our countries. Purely because the right of centre parties tend to be keener on trade. I mean, it, I, I think it's, it's that more than anything else. But I think once it were established, no one would really have a problem with it. I mean, you really do struggle to come up with any counter arguments. So, you know, I am very hopeful that there will be a change of government in Canada. Not because I have anything against Justin Trudeau, who, I mean, I have some things against him, but I think he's a perfectly nice guy. But I'm hugely enthusiastic about the leader of the Canadian opposition, Pierre Poilievre. I think he's one of the most impressive politicians in the world right now. And I think there would be, that would open a window. It would open a, a significant window of opportunity. You know, maybe I'm talking to the wrong people, but I think that there is enthusiasm for this in all three of the coalition parties here, at least among the people, not uniformly, but among most of the people I've spoken to, most of the MPs yeah. I've spoken to. And there's certainly a lot of enthusiasm in the in the UK. And I think even, you know, obviously Labour is in office in Australia, but there's nothing that I've I've heard from either from from Albo or from from ministers there that suggests that they're again, I mean there, there there was a there was a sort of if you like slightly anti-british tendency in parts of the Australian Labour Party that said you know we're really an asian country i think all of that's gone mm. since the chinese blockade no don't get me wrong i like your idea but i just want to play devil's advocate please so in new zealand last year we had an opinion poll suggesting that one out of five new zealanders is thinking about leaving for australia That was at a time when the economy didn't go well, when mm. we had massive political divisions and all the other problems that you probably heard about. And already New Zealand, of course, has one of the largest expat communities of any country in the world. So we have this massive brain drain towards Australia, also driven, of course, by a massive differential in wages. So I could imagine that some New Zealand politicians would get quite nervous thinking, hey, we have this agreement now where you could easily move to Canada, to the UK, maybe to Singapore, where wages are even higher, and we're bleeding out if we make it too easy for people to leave. Yes, I mean, it's slightly sort of East German way of thinking, but I don't think it's even true. I mean, of course, it is It is the case on paper that there is a great GDP disparity. I don't think anyone who's lived in both countries would see a standard of living disparity. I just, I have relatives in both places. I, I've spent quite a lot of time here. I mean, why wouldn't you want to live here? I mean, it's, it's you know, the cost of leisure and the, the cost of the good things in life here is very, very low. And that's, so, you see, I, I could imagine the opposite argument. I could imagine people saying, well, hang on, you know. We'll be flooded. We'll be flooded, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think neither of those is true, and neither of them, even if it were true, would be a really overwhelming reason. If, if, if people are willing to come here to work, right? So what I think the the ideal outcome in Kansas would be would be the right to take a job in another country without needing a visa. 
it wouldn't imply a right to welfare or uh, you know to, to housing or anything like that but it would be the right to come and pick up a paycheck on arrival without needing to fill in any forms how can that be a bad idea at the same time of course you have to have countries in such a free migration zone with relatively similar gdps right and i think that's the key thing and that's why i mean look when occasionally people say well, what what about the rest of the commonwealth what about india what about india I mean, India is two-thirds of the population of the Commonwealth. I would love to get to the point where Indian GDP is so high that it would be comparable to the other countries and you could have free movement without a an immediate surge of population. I'd love that to happen. And, you know, the capitalist system is a great global leveller up and one day it will happen. But in the timescale that we're interested in, we're not yet there. So what is the kind of cutoff point between two countries where you would say actually such an agreement can still work? Well, I think it's if, if in brute terms, if the GDP per head is close enough that it wouldn't lead to a massive shift one way or the other. 30% still okay? 40%? 50%? Well, you know, I don't, I, it's not up to me to start coming up with, with lists, but I think the countries that we're talking about, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have a huge surge we know that already. I mean, we, we can see the, the way the population moves w within the existing rules. But I think it is also important to have a shared outlook. So not just a, a common language, but uh, a, a shared view of the world resting on a similar uh, set of civil values of Magna Carta and freedom under the law and individualism and the sanctity of contract and private property and all of that. I think there are quite a few Commonwealth countries that could eventually get there, you know. Um, Which ones do you have well, in some, mind? You know, I mean, look at some of the wealthier Caribbean countries. Imagine them yep. getting, you know. Um, uh, but in due course, if it, if you're taking a, a, a long-term view of this, you know, I, I, you could easily imagine a situation where someone like Malaysia or Sri Lanka would become rich enough to, you know, uh, by, by pursuing the right policies to qualify. Could you imagine countries from outside the anglo culture to join at some stage, in a, thinking of maybe a South Korea. In a, in a really perfect world, there would be no trade agreements because we'd all be pursuing Indeed. unilateral. Uh, and I'd love to get to such a world. And, and in a way, that would be, what, that would be a, another way of putting it, wouldn't it? That, that uh, we've all just dismantled our commercial barriers. Well, that's probably a nice wish for a world in a 150 years. In the meantime, we are facing the threat of deglobalization right well, now. Well, not the threat. Tragically, we're facing the reality of, of deglobalization. It's terrifying what's happening. Uh, I was at the Montpellerin meeting in uh, in Bretton Woods last month, end of October, as we as we record this podcast, so just last month. And there was a, a terrifying and brilliant presentation, probably the best trade economist alive, who's called Douglas Irwin at Dartmouth College. And it was charting geopolitical stability and trade on a on a map. So he was measuring what proportion of world GDP was accounted for by trade, uh, and and what was the world like while this was happening. And in very simplified terms, free trade increased during the Pax Britannica. The Victorians unilaterally embraced free trade, and it was a time of extraordinary global growth and in relative terms, extraordinary global peace. And there's this wonderful passage from John Maynard Keynes, The Economic Consequences of the Peace, where right. he writes so, about that. Exactly. So in, exactly, at the beginning of the 20th century, that yes. begins to break apart. We the, the, the world ceases to be unipolar. British power is no longer unchallenged. And there are calls for retaliatory tariffs. Mm -hmm. And we then have three decades of unmitigated horror. The and two it, world wars, the Great Depression, the Holodomor, yep. the Holocaust, yep. all that, right. Then, in Bretton Woods... 
the world leaders get together and say, look, this is linked to trade. We have to make sure that we have mechanisms in place to prevent the return of autarky and protectionism, which was not just something that the dictators favoured, it was something that had produced them. They were creatures of it as much as they were defenders of it. Indeed. And so for the next 70-odd years, after the Second World War, we had a period of falling tariffs, we had the GATT, and we had, again, a period of unprecedented peace and prosperity, as chronicled by Steven Pinker and so on, right? Yes. Up until the global financial crisis. And this is where it gets scary. 2011 was the year that Stephen Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, was published, which was the, the most comprehensive account of how the world had become less violent on any measure, you know, not just fewer wars, but fewer homicides and less violence against women, any measure you like, right? It was also the year that Matt Ridley published The Rational Optimist, which extended that thesis to more widely to social and economic questions. You know, we, we've never lived so so well. Why do we have all this false nostalgia? And then we had Hans Rosling as well. And Hans Rosling, it was all it was all peaking round about then, and it was all looking very true. It now looks, in retrospect, as though, you know, twenty eleven was poking up. It was like as I flew here, I saw the the, the peak of of Mount Taranaki above the clouds. That that was twenty eleven, right? Since then, there has been a retreat from free trade and a retreat from liberal democracy, and a retreat from peace. So there are are various international league tables of how democratic and free is the world. You know, the Economist Intelligence Unit does one. There's there's one called Ideas. There's the thing called the Democracy Index, the United Nations. They all have slightly different methodologies. They all show the same thing, that at some point between 2010 and 2015, the progress towards liberal democracy stalled and began to go into reverse. And that slide... I'm sorry to say, was massively speeded up by the lockdowns. Uh, we became much more authoritarian. We were habituated to having to ask permission even to use our own property or travel. The world is in a much more authoritarian place, and the world is in a much more protectionist place. So actually, this was the horrifying conclusion of, of, of Doug Irwin's amazing thesis. Of course we're going to have wars in Ukraine and Gaza and so on, because that's what always happens when the world retreats from globalization. We, we, we forget that the great argument of the free traders of Cobden and so on was not that it would make us a bit richer. I mean, they, of course, they did say that, but that wasn't what really got their juices flowing. The That's big one. argument was that it would, it would make war harder, and it did. That is one of my favorite quotes from Bastia, where yeah. goods don't cross borders, soldiers, soldiers will. Exactly right. So with your work towards trade, with your work towards at least trade between four like-minded nations, Let's hope that you will make a peaceful world more realistic. Well, you know, the, the world we are in now is suddenly looking a lot darker than we thought possible. You know, you and I grew up where we were accustomed. We, we basically thought that it would be patchy and fitful, but that the world would move in a basically peaceful direction. We've seen how skin deep that is, how tribal people can be, how little it takes to get people stirred up on racial or religious or national grounds against somebody else. And the more we allow people to to go down this line of saying we need to produce our own stuff and grow our own food and protect our own strategic industries and all this, it all, all sounds very plausible, but it all serves to make a country poorer and politically less stable. And so let's, let's not forget the successes we had from 1944 till 2011 or so. It was, it was a pretty extraordinary period for mankind. We know the formula. We've seen the recipe work. Let's not lose it.
Well, let's work towards that. But for now, thank you very much for being our guest on the podcast, Dan Hannon. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you.